I'd like to start by asking you a simple question. For those of you who have been saved, how can we persevere until the end? If you're here tonight, I'm guessing that most of us have made a profession of faith, been baptized, joined a church, um, in some way or another begun the Christian walk. But for many of us, the question is not, how can I be saved, but how can I persevere until the end? How do I keep going? Almost every year we read of prominent professing Christians turning away from the faith. A pastor, evangelist, um, prominent Christian figure. Even more shockingly, often it's someone we know. A friend, a church member, a colleague, uh, even a family member. Some of them deny Christ openly or join a cult or claim to be atheists. Others just quietly slip back into old patterns of life move back in with an unbelieving boyfriend or girlfriend, pick up old habits that they promised to leave behind, or stop showing up at church. The people we thought would never turn away too often turn their backs on Christ. What did they miss? Where did they go wrong? And how do we make sure that doesn't happen to us? With all the forces of the world working against you, how do you hold fast to Christ? With all the ideologies of the world telling you that Christ cannot save, all the temptations of the world telling you that Christ cannot satisfy, how on earth do you make it through the next 20, 30, 40, or 50 years of the Christian life without apostatizing? How can you persevere? In order to answer that question, turn with me to the book of Colossians. 30 years after Christ's death and resurrection, the Apostle Paul wrote from house arrest in Rome to encourage a young church facing a very similar issue. The church of Colossae was about 100 miles east of Ephesus in a small town that had never been visited by the Apostle Paul. They heard the gospel from Epaphras, who had heard the gospel from Paul on his third missionary journey when he visited Ephesus. Now, as Paul was in his Roman imprisonment in house arrest, Epaphras had made the long journey from Ephesus all the way over to Rome to ask advice from Paul because his church was being attacked by false teaching and by immorality. Look at chapter 2 of Colossians. You can see some of the attack on the Colossian church. Colossians chapter 2 from verse 8 to 23 mentions heresy facing them. Things like empty deception, traditions of men, elementary principles of the world we see in verse 8. Later on, Paul mentions the worship of angels, visions, Um, People saying, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Something that Paul summarizes as self-made religion, abasement, and mistreatment of the body. If you turn over to chapter 3, verse 5, you see the other thing that was facing the church. Another temptation, which was the temptation to immorality. Paul says, immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, greed, and idolatry. These are all things that the Colossians were tempted to slip back into. So the Colossian church was faced with lies and with worldliness. Does that sound familiar? Sound like something we face in the 21st century? The Colossian church was under attack and Epaphras needed help. So Paul writes to the Colossians and does what Paul loves to do. He exhorts them to remain steadfast in the faith 
And he backs that up with rich doctrinal teaching that will enable them to obey. Look at chapter 2 of Colossians for Paul's central commands. Colossians 2 verse 6. Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, having been firmly rooted and now being built up in him and established in your faith, just as you were instructed and overflowing with gratitude. See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception, according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. So this is the center of Colossians right here. Two commands, walk in Christ, watch out for false teaching. But how do we do this? What doctrine does Paul provide to back up these commands? What does the Colossian church need to know in order to persevere? And what do we need to know in the 21st century to face the heresies and temptations of the age? Well, in the book of Colossians, if you've read it, you know, Paul provides the most exalted teaching on Jesus Christ in the whole Bible, showing us that the only antidote to apostasy is a full dose of the supremacy and the sufficiency of Christ. And it's my goal that you will receive that tonight. If nothing else, just a glimpse of the glory of Christ in the gospel so that you will be strengthened to persevere for one more week in your Christian walk. So with that, turn with me to Colossians 1 from verse 13. We'll look tonight at verse 21 to 23, but let's read now from verse 13. Colossians 1 from verse 13. For he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is also the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him. Through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Through him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. And our passage for tonight. And although you were formerly alienated, hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him holy, blameless, and beyond reproach, if indeed you continue in the faith, firmly established and steadfast, not moved away from the hope of the gospel that you have heard, which was proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, was made a minister. Let's pray for our time together. Lord, your word is truth. You have given us this book of Colossians with truth about Christ, because you know that we are prone to wander. We are so prone to believe the lives of the world, to turn back to our old ways of living, to forget who this Christ is. Lord, I pray that you would remind us through your word. Show us Christ. Show us a picture of the gospel so that we would be strengthened to persevere and to honor you for the salvation that you have given us. We pray in Christ's name, amen. So tonight, in Colossians 1, from verse 21 to 23, we're going to look at four aspects of reconciliation that Paul preaches. 
so that we will worship Christ for his work and so that we will be motivated to persevere in our walk with him until the end. So four aspects of reconciliation. First, in verse 21, the need for reconciliation. In verse 22, A and B, the the accomplishment of reconciliation. Verse 22, C, the purpose of reconciliation. And verse 23, the implication of reconciliation. So let's look first at verse 21, the need for reconciliation. And although you were formerly alienated, hostile in mind, and engaged in evil deeds. Why does Paul start here? Hasn't he read the church growth manuals? You're supposed to make people feel comfortable, right? So they keep coming back. You're not supposed to remind them of their sin. As we'll see tonight, Paul isn't concerned with making the Colossians comfortable. Rather, he wants to remind them of the majestic gospel. Because that's what saved them. And only by understanding that will they have the strength to persevere. So what does Paul do? Paul elevates Christ. And how does Paul elevate Christ? He starts by putting us in our proper place. Look at the first words of verse 21. And although you. So for the last seven verses, Paul has been preaching about Christ. Verse 15 to 20 contain this incredible hymn about Christ with some of the most exalted language in all of Scripture written about Jesus. Look at verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, both in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones, dominions, rulers, or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. Wow. Paul just said the whole story of creation is about Christ. It's in him, by him, through him, for him. It all revolves around him. And now Paul turns, and the first two words of this verse in the Greek, and you. Where does the Colossian church fit into this story of reconciliation? Where do we, where do you, Calvary Baptists, fit into this story of reconciliation? Well, you provided the estrangement that made the reconciliation necessary. Look at verse 21. You were formerly alienated, hostile in mind, and engaged in evil deeds. In this one verse, Paul makes three statements about our condition before Christ and that make our need for reconciliation absolutely clear. First, he talks about our pre-Christ position, 21a, alienated. To be alienated is to be estranged, excluded, kept outside of. This is kingdom language. Remember, in the context, this is Christ's cosmic triumph over thrones, dominions, rulers, and authorities in verse 16. In verse 13, salvation is pictured as a transfer from one kingdom to another. He rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. So the idea is that Christ is the king and you were not born into his kingdom. You were born outside of it. This word for alienation is only used two other places in scripture, both by Paul in the letter to the Ephesians. In Ephesians 2, Paul says, remember that you were at that time without Christ alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in this world. So that's the kind of alienation we're talking about. Hopeless, friendless, nationless. In Ephesians 4, Paul says something similar. The unbelieving Gentiles, Paul says, were darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their hearts. So think about this alienation. As grateful as we are for our nation and the freedoms we have here, citizenship only lasts until you die. You're not supposed to vote after you're dead. 
though who knows whether some do. But your heavenly immigration status will determine whether you spend eternity with God or weeping and gnashing your teeth outside the gates. To be alienated from God is to be cut off from the life giver, the creator, the only source of forgiveness. Christian, consider for a moment your position before salvation. You were alienated, without Christ, without God, without hope in this world. So that's our position before Christ. We were alienated. Look next at our pre-Christ disposition, hostile in mind. So not only were we outside God's kingdom, we were enemies of Christ. We were hostile. The word used here for hostility conveys the idea of intense personal rivalry or hatred. Turn over to Luke chapter 19 to see somewhere else that explains what this hostility looks like. Luke chapter 19. Look at verse 11 and following. Jesus tells a parable about a nobleman. He says, A nobleman went to a distant country to receive a kingdom for himself and then return. And he called ten of his slaves and gave them ten minas and said to them, Do business with this until I come back. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, We do not want this man to reign over us. So in the following verses, the nobleman returns. He rewards the wise servants for their efforts. And then jump down to verse 27. What does the nobleman do to his, to the rebels in his kingdom? He says, these enemies of mine who did not want me to be king over them, bring them here and slaughter them in my presence. So enemies, that's, that's the word that Paul uses about us before Christ. We were enemies. This isn't just that you weren't friends with God. You maybe weren't quite in the church, but you were friendly with it. This is rebellion, uprising, war. Notice the next word clarifies where this war was, in mind. So the war was in your thoughts, your attitude, your disposition. In the Old Testament, this is described as your heart, right? The center of your thinking, everything you do. Paul is saying that before Christ reconciled you to himself, your entire mindset was warfare against God. And this principle is clear in Scripture. When it comes to the reign of Christ over all creation, there are only two parties. You are either a friend of God or you are his enemy. There are no allies. There are citizens and there are aliens. Romans 8 verse 7 says, the mindset on the flesh is hostile toward God. James chapter 4 says, friendship with the world is enmity towards God. There is no middle ground. Either you are a friend of God or you are his enemy. As we consider this first point, we see that Our pre-Christ position was alienated. Our pre-Christ disposition was hostile. Look now at our pre-Christ actions. 21C, engaged in evil deeds. So not only were we estranged from God and hostile toward him in our thinking, in our mind, we were working out this position by breaking his commandments up to the very point of salvation. Turn over to Colossians 3, verse 5. Paul describes here the exact kind of evil deeds that the Colossians were engaged in. Colossians 3, verse 5, Therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. For it is because of these things that the wrath of God will come upon the sons of disobedience. And in them you also once walked 
when you were living in. But now you also put them all aside. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and abusive speech from your mouth. So as Paul is setting up in this verse the need for reconciliation, he makes it very clear that there is one reason we were we need to be reconciled to God, and it is our sin. Scripture teaches clearly that God is holy, that he cannot be with a sinful people. If you struggle to remember the seriousness of sin, try reading the book of Leviticus this week. Look out for every time it talks about holiness, cleanliness, or blood. Because blood was what it took to pay for sin. Look how much blood was shed in the sacrificial system so that God could dwell with sinful Israel. That's how seriously God takes sin. Isaiah 59 says, Your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. Your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. Looking at verse 21, how dire was our situation before Christ? We were estranged from God outside his kingdom, constantly scheming against him in our mind, and carrying out our schemes in our actions daily. So in the face of false teaching and temptation, Paul writes to the Colossian church and says, remember what Christ saved you from. Believer, do you recognize what a great work Christ has done to you who were alienated, to us who were alienated? Look at Colossians 1, verse 12 to 13. Just a few verses earlier, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. For he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. So Christ not only canceled your alien status, he not only made you a citizen of his kingdom, he made you an heir. Do you realize what a great work Christ has done for you who were an enemy? Romans 5, verse 6 to 10 Turn over to Romans 5 to see how God treated us who were, your, who were his enemies. We saw what God did with aliens. He made us heirs. Now with enemies, Romans 5 shows us how God treated us. Romans 5 from verse 6. While we were still helpless at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man. Though perhaps for the good man, someone would dare even to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only this, but we also exult in God through our Lord Jesus Christ through whom we have now received the reconciliation. So the offended king, instead of sending his armies to pulverize his enemies, he sent his own son to take our guilt so that we could eat at his table. Look also at what Christ did for you who were a sinner. Colossians 2 verse 13, how did Christ deal with this sin? Paul says, when you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him having forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us. And he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. What a gracious Savior we have, who saved us when we were aliens, enemies, and sinners. In light of that, how could we ever walk away from Christ? How could we fall prey to immorality or to false teaching? 
So we've seen the need for reconciliation. Look next at verse 22a and b, the accomplishment of reconciliation. Verse 22 of Colossians 1, yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death. We see here two simple but profound truths. First, that reconciliation was accomplished by God, and then that reconciliation was accomplished through Christ's death. Verse 22a, reconciliation is accomplished by God. Notice a few things in these verse, in a few things in these first few words. Yet he has now. Yet. It's the same word for but, right? In spite of. This reconciliation is not because of anything we have done, but because, but in spite of it. Then he. This reconciliation is accomplished by who? By God. Has now. This reconciliation is completed for every believer. These four little words, yet he has now, changed the direction of the whole passage and the whole story of our Christian life. You were aliens, yet he has now. You were hostile in mind, yet he has now. You were engaged in evil deeds, yet he has now. You were fully deserving of the wrath of God for all eternity, yet he has now. Praise the Lord for these four little words here in Colossians and throughout the New Testament. Look at the pattern in this verse. Verse 21, you were formerly. Verse 22, he has now. Does that sound familiar from the rest of Paul's letters? Paul loves to do that. Famously in Ephesians, right? You were dead in your transgressions and sins, but God. Romans 11 is similar. You once were disobedient, but now have been shown mercy. First Corinthians, such were some of you, but you were washed. And Ephesians 2 Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were formerly far off have been brought near. So all these passages have one thing in common. In spite of who we were and everything we did, God moved to save us. Paul loves to remind us of our impossible God-orchestrated salvation. Praise the Lord for the yets and the buts in the Bible. Now notice the word that Paul uses here to describe our salvation reconciliation. The New Testament has a lot of words to describe salvation, right? We've got justification, redemption, forgiveness, adoption, and here, reconciliation. Why does Paul use this word here? What does it add to our understanding of salvation? Well, this particular term, reconciliation, refers to the exchange of hostility for a friendly relationship. Reconciliation has to do with our position before God particularly whether he views us as enemies or friends. We can trace the story of reconciliation through all of Scripture, right? From the very garden when God created man and woman, they were in perfect communion with God, walking with him in the cool of the day. But sin separated man from the garden, right? The Lord God sent him out of the Garden of Eden. And then throughout the Old Testament, man remained separated from God. There was the temple veil, all the levels of the temple that you had to get through to get to God. And even though the sacrifices brought us near, there was still a separation from God. The priest could only enter once per year, right? So sinful man, it's clear in Scripture, cannot have a friendship with God unless we ourselves could become perfectly holy. And this is what Christ accomplished in his work on the cross. Turn over to 2 Corinthians 5, verse 18. 2 Corinthians 5 from verse 18 to see what this reconciliation is. Paul writes, Now all these things are from God, 
who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Namely, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. And he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. So notice here and elsewhere that reconciliation is primarily objective. It's a declaration of friendship, not counting our trespasses against us, right? So God considers us to be his friends because of the accomplished work of Christ, which made us officially holy in his sight. So there will be a change of heart with reconciliation, right? We will stop acting like enemies of God. But the primary thrust of reconciliation is not that we started being friendly toward God, but that Christ made us God's friends through his completed work. Why is this important to note? Because our reconciliation is permanent. Because it's accomplished by Christ on the cross. And that's exactly what we see here. Despite the fact that we were aliens and enemies, God moved to make us his friends. God moved first. He will move last. Our reconciliation is accomplished by God. And how did he do this? Only through Christ's death. So we saw in this verse 22 that reconciliation was accomplished by God. Look now, reconciliation is accomplished through Christ's death. Verse 22b says, in his fleshly body through death. Why does Paul emphasize here the fleshly body of Christ? Well, remember, the distance between us and God is sin. Your sins have made a distance between you and God, a separation. God has always required life throughout Scripture as a punishment for sin, right? All the way from the book of Leviticus, Leviticus 17 says, the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood by reason of the life that makes atonement. Even Hebrews 9 in the New Testament says, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins, right? So the Colossian church was also being faced with a heresy that said Jesus didn't really have a physical body, that Jesus was some spirit angel being that came down. And so Paul makes it very clear in Colossians that Christ accomplished our reconciliation in his physical death on the cross. Even in verse 20, he says, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Paul Paul loves speaking about the blood of Christ because it points to that specific act of reconciliation where Christ accomplished our friendship with God. Only by Christ's blood could we be counted righteous and counted friends of God. What a savior we have. We who are aliens are heirs. We who are enemies are friends. We who are evil are made righteous. How? Because the one who was the heir, who was the friend, who was the righteous one, took our sins on his shoulders in the cross. Brothers and sisters, the Christian life is hard. Temptation and false teaching are real. But the next time that you are tempted to turn away from Christ, remember that this Christ was broken for you so that you could be made God's friend. He is worthy of your perseverance. So we've seen the need for reconciliation, the accomplishment of reconciliation. Look now at verse 22c, the purpose of reconciliation. In order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. So at this point in the reconciliation story, if you're tracking with Paul's logic, you should have one burning question. Why? Why would God do all of this for us? If we were aliens, enemies, and sinners, and if reconciliation would cost him the life of his very own son, 
why on earth would God go to such great lengths to reconcile us? What does he stand to gain? Paul argues here that reconciliation had one very specific purpose, that Christ would receive the glory when we're presented before him on the final judgment day. Look at verse 18. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. This story is all about Christ. That's what you should get from the book of Colossians. Everything was created through him. It was all created for him. It's all held together by him, and he gets all the glory when one day we are presented holy, blameless, and above reproach to him. Notice the emphasis here is on the future. We've seen our past condition. We've seen our present state reconciled to God. Paul focuses now on the future fulfillment of all of this. So this great story of reconciliation is about God drawing a people near to himself. And that has happened to some extent here. We are reconciled. Our reconciliation is accomplished. But the story doesn't end here. It looks forward to the end of history when one day we will be presented to God as Christ's perfect people. Christ's bride, right? Ready, adorned for her husband. Christian, your reconciliation is complete, but it's not the end of the story. Your reconciliation was designed to prepare you for a final presentation. Look back at this passage to see how you will be presented. On that day, because of the work of Christ, God will see you as holy, set apart, right? Pure, morally pure for God. God will see you as blameless, literally without blemish, right? It looks back to the spotless lamb of the old covenant or the spotless lamb of the new covenant, Christ. And beyond reproach, unable to be accused. Now, why does Paul remind the Colossian church of this final presentation? Well, two reasons. First of all, it's an encouragement. Second, it's a motivation. First, it's an encouragement. Christ will succeed. If you have been reconciled, you will be presented one day. Christ will finish the work, right? He's begun a good work in you, and he will bring it to completion. But also, it's a motivation. Chapter 3, verse 4, that we've seen already today. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. Therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion. So, our Christian life is designed to prepare us for a final presentation one day. The work of sanctification started when you were saved, and it will continue until you die. There is no, I'm saved, great, I'm going to heaven, now I can live how I want for the rest of my life. No, you were saved so that you can be presented pure to God one day. Christian, Christ reconciled you so that he could present you. How's your preparation for that presentation going? You were called for a purpose. Your sanctification cannot take a back seat. The Christ who gave his life for you owns every part of you. And he wants one thing from you, to be holy, blameless, and above reproach. You must persevere, because Christ is worthy of his reward. And you can persevere, because Christ will receive his reward. So look with me finally at the implication of reconciliation. In verse 23. If indeed you continue in the faith, firmly established and steadfast, not moved away from the hope of the gospel that you have heard, which was proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, was made a minister. 
So as Paul concludes this incredible section on the person and the work of Christ, Paul applies this truth to the believers' lives by urging them to do what? To continue. To persevere in the faith until the end. Remember, what group of people is Paul writing to? He's writing to a group of baby Christians who are faced with false teaching, temptation, and they're tempted to turn away from Christ. They were being told that there are better ways to be saved than this Jew that died 30 years ago in Jerusalem. Paul tells them here, after everything I've just written to you about Christ, do not walk away from him. We know from many other places in Scripture, right, that our salvation is permanent. Even in the book of Colossians, it's obvious. The images are permanent. It's a transfer from one kingdom to another. It's the cancellation of a debt of sin. This is not reversible. Paul is not saying that you can lose your salvation. However, from a human perspective, we know that God holds us personally responsible to continue in the faith until the end, right? Even as we saw in chapter 2, verse 8, what's Paul's command? See to it that no one takes you captive. Don't be led astray. Don't turn away from Christ. So as Paul wraps up this paragraph, he gives a final charge to the Colossian church. He says, Christ has reconciled you. Now walk in him. And if you want to know what that looks like, read the rest of Colossians. Because he makes it very, very specific. Walk in him as a wife, as a husband, as an employee, as a master. Walk in him in the church. It's very specific. And he says here, walk in him firmly established, steadfast, and not moved away. Your Christian faith is supposed to be rock solid, unshaking, and immovable because of what Christ has done. Christian, Christ has saved you and he has called you to remain in him. Firmly fixed in the hope of the gospel, not in your own strength. Hear his call tonight. Do not turn away from him to a lesser master. This week when sin or doubt come calling, persevere by remembering Christ's reconciling work. Remember how he rescued you from your greatest need by his death on the cross and for one purpose, that one day you would be presented to him holy, blameless, and beyond reproach. Christ is worthy of your perseverance. And that's what we learn in the book of Colossians. I'll conclude with the words of the hymn from William McComb, Chief of Sinners Though I Be. Listen to his description of reconciliation. Chief of sinners though I be, Jesus shed his blood for me. Died that I might live on high, lives that I might never die. As the branches to the vine, I am his and he is mine. Oh, the height of Jesus' love, higher than the heavens above, deeper than the depths of sea, lasting as eternity. Love that found me, wondrous thought, found me when I sought him not. Strengthen me, O gracious Lord, by your spirit and your word. When my wayward heart would stray, keep me in the narrow way. Grace in time of need supply, while I live and when I die. Let's pray together. Lord, your word makes it abundantly clear that there are only two kingdoms. There is the kingdom of Christ and the kingdom of his enemies. 
Lord, I pray that no one here tonight would be found to be an enemy of Christ on that final day. Lord, may we all be reconciled through the blood of Christ and through his accomplished work. And Lord, for those who have been reconciled here tonight, I pray that you would help us to persevere. The world is full of false teaching and of temptation to turn aside from Christ. But Christ is so worthy of our perseverance. Lord, strengthen us by your word. Help us to look to the gospel and this reminder in Colossians of what you have done. Strengthen us to persevere this week and in the months to come that we would cling to Christ. We pray in his name. Amen. 